Every time I go grocery shopping, one of the first things I do is I check the wheels on the cart that I'm going to be pushing. I'll be honest, I have a lot of pet peeves in my life, and one of them is to push a grocery cart where one of the wheels keeps going clack, 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 and the whole cart shakes, and it seems like I'm making noise that everyone in the store is looking at. Every time I push, it's like... Just thinking about it causes me problems. It's usually a little piece of the wheel that's missing. Some of that rubber that's been gouged out or scraped away. Now, during Christmas time and Advent, we talk a lot about peace. The angels proclaimed peace to men on earth. And in the passage that was read this morning, Zechariah sings prophetically about his son, John the Baptist. I was disappointed, Guga, that you didn't sing that for us today. Did you consider it? Next year? Okay. That, you heard that. That's a promise. Guga will sing Zechariah's song for us next year. <laughs> anyway, Zechariah sings prophetically about his son, John the Baptist, whose calling and life purpose was to prepare the way for the Messiah, who is Jesus. What's the last phrase of Zechariah's song? Prophetically, he speaks and he says that John, his son, will guide the feet of the people of Israel into the path of peace. But as with hope that we looked at last week, the word peace also needs to be defined. Most of us think of peace as a feeling a feeling of calm, a feeling of well-being, or we think of it as an absence of conflict. But it's much more. It's much more than that. The biblical understanding of peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Now, from your interactions with the Jewish culture or with TV, uh, you may have heard that word used as a greeting or as a blessing or even as something that's said at the time of departure. But shalom is more than a greeting. It's more than a feeling. And it's not just the absence of conflict. It means the profound blessing of wholeness or completeness. You remember the account in the Gospels when Jesus is on his way to Jairus' home to deal with his daughter who's dying. And on the way, a woman touches the back of his garment, the back of his robe, and power goes out of him. The woman is healed from a malady with which she has struggled for decades. Jesus calls her to him, and they have the ensuing interaction. And as she leaves, Jesus says to her, Go in peace, your faith has healed you. So we hear that phrase, go in peace, and I'm not sure what it conjures up for you, but I think most of us would think it just means go, go in calmness. You're going to be calm. But what Jesus is affirming to her is that she is going to now live in a state of wholeness and completeness, whereas previously to that, she would have been broken, sick, in despair. From that encounter with Christ forward, 
She will live whole and complete. So Jesus says to her, go in the blessing of wholeness. Now you're saying, why in the world did you start out talking about a grocery cart? Because it has nothing to do with peace. But it does. If the divot or the nick in the wheel of the grocery cart can be filled in, if that which is missing can be replaced, the wheel will be made whole and the cart will move smoothly and quietly, peacefully. Peace is very hard to find in our world, but yet the human soul desperately seeks it. And it's hard to find because we are all, and by we, I'm talking about humanity and creation, the world itself is desperately and profoundly broken. This week, my family and I were reading an Advent devotional by Paul David Tripp, and the image he uses is of a china plate, a plate of fine china that is thrown violently to the ground, and it shatters irreparably into shards and chips and slivers, and that's an image of the state of all creation due to, due to the devastation of sin. Now today, we're going to look at a New Testament passage that is first going to describe for us what a lack of peace is like. And then it will teach us where and how wholeness and completeness can be found. I'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. Therefore, Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the, the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. The first descriptor that defines a lack of peace I'm going to make up a word, actually. I'm going to refer to it from now on as peacelessness. That's not a real word. I'm aware it's not a real word. Just as long as you know that I know that it's not a real word, we'll understand what we're talking about. A lack of peace. Peacelessness. The first definition of peacelessness, according to Paul here, as he writes to the Ephesian church, is separation from Christ. That's the fundamental reality. Being apart from Christ is to be without peace. The second descriptor, according to Paul, is that 
people who are without peace are excluded from the community of faith. Now, in this context, Paul is addressing the friction, the disunity between Gentiles and Jews in the context of this new thing called the church. Something that the believers in Jesus are trying to figure out, okay, throughout the New Testament. What is this body of Christ? What is this church supposed to be? How are we supposed to interact? What does it mean? So up until this point, we have Jews and Gentiles who hate each other, but now we're being told by Paul, not we, them, they're being told by Paul, wait, 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 that barrier between the two of you, that's been destroyed by Jesus. But in describing that pre-state, Paul uses the words excluded from citizenship in Israel saying that Gentiles were not allowed to be citizens of Israel. Now, in our current context, we would say they were excluded from the church, or more broadly, excluded from the community of faith. You see, the community of faith, the body of Christ, is built upon shalom. It is built upon the blessing of wholeness. To be excluded from that community is a sad state in which to be, to have no spiritual family, to belong to no community, to be lonely and adrift and disconnected from the family of God. I remember as a child from time to time feeling really left out. Either my friends planned something or went somewhere and I wasn't invited. That hurts. Maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe it's, you know, not being chosen to play a game. But that sad and lonely, isolated, longing feeling of not being included, of being excluded. And that's an image of peacelessness, to be incomplete, excluded from the family of God and from the community of faith. The next description of a person without peace is that they are foreigners to the covenants of the promise. What is the covenant and what is the promise? These are Jewish ways of referring to salvation. God's covenant with Israel was a covenant that he would be their God, that they would be his people, and that he would provide for them temporally and eternally. To be without peace is to be in a state where sin is still in control where our lives are controlled by that sin and the promise of salvation is foreign. In other words, it's not for us. We don't enjoy its rights because we're not citizens of heaven. And next, what does Paul say? It's it's interesting, he's just stacking up these descriptors one on top of the other. The next thing he says is they're without hope. They were without hope. We talked about hope last week. That hope is not something that may or may not occur. It's a guarantee given by God based upon his promise. It may not have come yet, but because it's promised by God, we can count it a certainty. Those who are without peace do not have that hope. That promise was not made to them. They do not have the guarantee of the presence of God, nor do they have the promise of eternal life. 
When I was in elementary school, once a year in physical education class, we had to undergo this unique torment called the Presidential Fitness Awards and or tests, Presidential Fitness Tests. Now, for some people who are naturally gifted, they loved it because they got lots of honor and recognition. For other people like me, we're just kind of average. We had to do these different physical tests. And I could do okay on most of them until it came to pull-ups. You know what pull-ups are? I don't know what pull-ups are. You may know what pull-ups are. I know what they are in theory. You know, you're supposed to hang from a bar and pull yourself up, right? Repeatedly. Now, the goal, I remember at that time, was to, to attain the level of presidential physical fitness. You had to do 10. For me, that was the definition of hopelessness. <laughs> I understood the theory. I understood what was required. I understood the mechanics from it, of it, but it was impossible. That promise had not been given to me. That guarantee, that talent, that strength was not... I, on a good day, I could do one and a half. On a miraculous day, I could do two. I never got anywhere close to 10. And as I've grown, I may not even be able to do one anymore. I was without a chance. I was hopeless. And those without peace have no hope. There's no chance. No promise has been entrusted to them. No guarantee of the future has been given. The last descriptor that Paul uses is they're without hope and they're without God in the world. So Paul brackets this description of peacelessness with the same concept. First, they are separate from Christ, and then at the end, without God. He's emphasizing a point about the reality of what peace is. Its absence is defined by distance and separation from the presence of God. But now that he has given us such a bleak picture, he's going to introduce us to the good news of peace. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. Consider that concept of proximity. Separation, exclusion, no salvation, hopelessness without God are all words of pain and isolation. So as peace begins to revert that situation, the first concept is proximity or nearness. That which was once far away has been brought near. Those of you who live a long way away from people that you love, family members or friends, you can relate to this. You understand that distance that separates. And then the blessing of being brought near. Proximity is the beginning of the reversion of peacelessness. And how is it done? Through the blood of Christ. Now you who are far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit later, the implications of the blood. And then he follows, Paul follows with an, uh, a unique statement about Jesus. And it answers the question, who? Which is an odd question to ask. Who is our peace? That's not what most of us would normally ask. We would ask, what is our peace? But that's not, the, that's not the foundation. 
The foundation, as you might have guessed, is who? He himself is our peace. He himself is our wholeness. He himself is our completion. The wording's important. Jesus does not only bring peace, he doesn't only give peace, he doesn't just minister peace, he is our peace. Peace comes with his very presence. People can and do search desperately for peace in many different places, but there's no other place to find wholeness. There is no other place where we are made complete than in Jesus Christ. You can look for it all you want. We can desperately seek it, but we will not find it apart from its source. If you've ever held a baby that's not your child and the baby starts to fuss and cry and suddenly it seems as though the baby realizes these are strange arms, this is a strange face. Um, this is not my mom. And the baby, and, and you know, you do the bouncing thing and ah, oh, the bang, you know, and you talk like a baby to the baby because we somehow think that's going to make the baby stop crying. <laughs> and nothing works until the baby is handed into the arms of its mother. You've seen this happen. And it's a remarkable transformation. And the baby is not cognitively aware. The baby is not saying to itself, this is not my mother, I want my mother. Oh, this is now my mother, I can be calm. It's the presence of the mother. And the baby senses who the mother is. It's not even what the mother does necessarily. It's everything about who she is. And it's only the mother that's going to resolve that situation. You know, dads, we can help. We can get close. But God has uniquely blessed the mothers. And in the similar way, it is only the presence of Jesus Christ that will calm and bring wholeness and completeness and peace to the shattered, fragmented human soul. If the answer to the who is Jesus, the next question we might ask would be, what? What is this peace? Now, I've already said it's wholeness and completeness. The process of bringing peace is a process of unifying and completing that which is broken and divided. This is what Jesus does. Again, the example that Paul gives is the desperate, bitter barrier between Jews and Gentiles. These two groups hated each other. According to Jewish law, the Jews were not even allowed to eat in the presence of the Gentiles. Now here Jesus is saying that he destroyed that barrier. And he doesn't just destroy it. So he doesn't just take down the division. He says, I'm making one new entity out of these two desperate enemies. I am creating a new wholeness, a new complete union. Only Jesus can do that. Only he can bring unity and completeness by destroying the barriers that keep people from God and from each other. How does he do it? How has it been done? 
Here Paul lists us four concepts, four words, blood, flesh, cross, spirit. Verse 13 explains that proximity has come through the blood of Christ. Verse 15 affirms that the barrier has been abolished in the flesh of Jesus. And you know that when we celebrate communion, what are the elements? Body and blood, flesh and blood. Verse 16 reveals that both Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to the same Father through the cross. And finally, verse 18 states that all children of God have access through Christ to the same Spirit. At the center of the peace of God is the death of Jesus. This is what the blood and the flesh and the cross mean. The separation, exclusion, and isolation all were destroyed and died with Jesus on the cross. This is the way that distant, broken, shattered people can be brought near and made complete. This passage uses the word reconciled. What does that word mean? The definition in English is to bring into agreement or harmony to make compatible or consistent. So that which was in disagreement by the blood, by the flesh, by the cross, and by the spirit is made harmonious and agreeable. That which was completely incompatible, again, through the blood of Christ, through the flesh of Christ, through the cross and through the spirit is made compatible. Humanity and the divine, which were completely incompatible through the cross of Christ, were made to be unified. A few years ago, my family and I went to the south of Minas Gerais for a brief vacation. We stayed in a posada there. We knew it was going to be hot. The posada didn't have air conditioning, so we had taken a fan with us. And the first evening, we checked in and I plugged in the fan and it was remarkable. That fan worked better and faster and gave more air than it ever had before for about 20 seconds. <laughs> and then it never gave any air again. Why? Yes, because the fan was 127 volts and the posada was 220 and we burned it out. The next year we went back there and this time we were a little wiser and we found out that the posada had transformers, those heavy things, they're about this big. And what does the transformer do? I, I don't know the technical term. I'm just going to say from a lay person's perspective what happens. The transformer takes in, it receives into itself the harmful voltage. And yes, in my mind, 220 is harmful, it destroys things. It receives into itself <laughs> the harmful voltage, and what does it give out? The useful voltage. I know some, some of you are going to come and tell me all why I'm wrong, and that's fine. I don't care, but this is an illustration, and I'm making a point. That's just a transformer. Christ receives into himself the devastation of sin the jagged pieces of shattered souls 
And by his death, the shedding of his blood, the sacrifice of his flesh, on the cross, he reconciles people to God, making them whole. He takes in separation, exclusion, and brokenness, and he breathes out wholeness and completeness. He is our peace. So what now? Given that this is the way Paul illustrates the lack of peace and then peace itself through Christ, what is left up to us? How do we receive that peace? How do we say yes to it? How can we accept the harmony with God? Through his death, Jesus made this possible. But he will not force his peace on anyone. About a month and a half ago, I got a call on my cell phone from Toyota. And they said, we have in our records that you are the owner of a 1994, uh, 2004 Toyota Corolla. We are issuing a recall, something about an airbag. Um, we need to schedule a time for you to bring your car in so we can take care of this maintenance problem. It's free. It won't cost you anything. Well, the reality is when they called, I was very distracted and I said, can you call back another time? They called back another time. I didn't take the call. Then they called back again later and I took it and it was, it was just very inconvenient. The timing was not conducive and I kept kind of putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. They kept calling, they kept texting, they keep reminding me, they keep offering, but what they will not do, sometimes I wish they would, is just come to my house, take my car by force, fix it, and bring it back to me. Jesus will not force us to accept his peace. He will not force us to accept his redemption. He is continually offering he is continually inviting people to himself, but he will not take them by force. So if we choose to accept the peace that Christ offers, we do it by acceptance. And we call this acceptance repentance. It's acknowledging that there's a need for it. We say to Christ, I need you, I believe you are who you say you are and have done what you say you've done. I acknowledge that I'm broken, that I'm a sinner and I repent of that sin. And our repentance releases the forgiveness of God upon our lives. And his forgiveness makes us right with him. It restores us to wholeness and completeness. In short, it makes us at peace with him. Many of you have already taken that initial step. It's a big step. But you already believe in Jesus. You've already acknowledged that you're a sinner and that you need forgiveness. We call that general repentance. But Christ continues his reconciling work in us by his spirit, who then convicts us of specific sins. So, I want to suggest three other steps forward toward receiving God's peace. The first one is general repentance, and we would say that's salvation. Accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you and for me. 
after that step has been taken, we continue to walk in specific repentance. So you know what I'm talking about. When the Holy Spirit touches your, your, your heart and says, Haha, right, this, here, this thing right here, this sin right here, the specific one, you need to deal with that. And we often resist the Holy Spirit. We fight it. We don't want to repent. We want to keep doing what we're doing. And maybe we can think of God's forgiveness, which is ministered to us through repentance, as oil, lubrication, mechanically speaking, on two parts that are rubbing against each other. And without that lubrication, without that oil, they're just creating more and more friction. They're getting hotter and hotter. More and more damage is done. And when we finally say, okay, Lord, I repent of that sin. The oil of his forgiveness is applied <laughs> to those moving parts of the soul. The second step toward receiving the peace of God is to surrender. I know we use that word often. What am I talking about when I say surrender? As long as we resist God's plan and purpose and place in our lives, we will not be whole or complete. We won't. If we're constantly fighting it, if we're constantly resisting, will we be at peace? Will we be whole or complete? There comes a point where the human soul, even the soul that, has already, that already believes in Jesus, to say, okay, Father, I do, I surrender to your plan for me. You have made me, you created me, you know what you want from me, so I'll say yes to your plan. When we're able to say, thy will be done, it ushers in the peace of God. And the third step is one of forgiveness. I would imagine that most of our lack of peace comes in one way or another through broken relationships. Either a broken relationship with God or a broken relationship with others. At the root of our peacelessness. So, is there somebody that you need to forgive? As we've been forgiven by God, we have both the responsibility but also the blessing of forgiving others. That's a hard thing to do. I don't think anyone would deny that. But as long as we insist on unforgiveness, as long as we insist on making somebody else pay for how they've hurt us, we will not be whole. We will not be at peace. So is God calling you? Is there somebody that you are being called to forgive? And you know it. For those of you that have lived in bitterness and unforgiveness, and then God has blessed you and brought you to that point of forgiveness and of giving that to someone else, you know what I'm talking about. When you live in that unforgiveness, it is draining and exhausting. 
God is calling us. He's inviting us to receive his peace through Jesus. Christ has come to earth, the promised child born of a virgin, the one we celebrate at Advent and Christmas. And he is our peace. Let's pray. Father, please forgive us. Forgive your people for our sins. Forgive us for seeking peace anywhere other than you. Lord, have mercy. Bring your wholeness to shattered souls. Bring your completeness to wounded hearts. May we live and go and worship in the blessing of your peace. Amen.